This is Voices of COVID-19. I'm Brian Lucas. Thanks for joining us. For most of us, the past year and a half often felt like we were on a treadmill. Day after day, we were working hard to get through the pandemic, to stay safe, to keep our families healthy, and to try to maintain some semblance of productivity in our work and our lives. But at the same time, as hard as we tried to get through it, the scenery didn't seem to get any better. The COVID numbers kept rising, the politics around the pandemic further divided us, and surrounding issues of inequity, racism, and fear consumed our nation. One of the ways I tried to process and cope was with art and music and podcasts. And therefore, one of the people who helped me through it all was Dessa. Dessa is a multi-talented rapper, singer, writer, and host of a podcast called Deeply Human, which takes a look at human nature and why we think and behave the way that we do. Episodes have examined topics including death, lying, the relationship between symmetry and beauty, and how standing in line is related to our sense of justice. It's a fascinating podcast that I highly recommend. In addition to the podcast, Dessa also released music in the midst of the pandemic, putting out a song on the 15th of each month under a project called IDES. But while Dessa was providing content that helped a lot of us through the difficult time, that doesn't mean that she didn't actually feel the impact of the pandemic. Like other musicians, the virus upended Dessa's plans for 2020 and forced her to navigate fear, anxiety, and isolation as she tried to figure out a path forward. To reflect on all of this, I am pleased to welcome Dessa. Dessa, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Absolutely. So my first question is going to take you back to more than a year ago now, beginning of 2020, as you looked ahead to what was going to be an eventful year for you anyway. What did January, February, Dessa, think about 2020? And when, was there a moment in time when all of a sudden you realized, whoa, everything's going to change? Yes, 100%. For me, the moment in March where I realized that my plans, you know, that had seemed, (laughs) that had seemed actionable in January and February were going to change was really, really a sharp and distinct moment. So at the very beginning of 2020, I had plans to do some touring and I was recording a new, a new podcast of my own, uh, one called deeply human. And I'd been spending a lot of time in London recording that. And although we hadn't announced the project yet, it was like the kind of the big thing on my plate, you know, for that year. And also I was really excited about a tour through China that I'd had on the books. And there was some discussion of maybe including the city of Wuhan mm. uh, at some point on that routing. The day that I re- wow. yeah, the day that I realized that that year was going to unfold really differently was actually in London. The BBC had put me up. We were working on some episodes, and when I left the office on Friday, my my boss essentially, the guy who's in who's in charge of the BBC World Service kind of editorial stuff said, do you think you should go home? And I didn't even know why he said that. I was like, because of the the COVID thing, you know, because of the coronavirus thing. And and, uh, and he goes, yeah. And I go, God, I don't think so. You know, and everyone was just like, oh my gosh, what a reactionary this guy is. And then I think it was by Saturday or Sunday of that same weekend, I was eating by myself and my phone started buzzing. And it was the news that Trump was announcing some travel restrictions. And by the time I got back to my hotel, um, you know, to to reenter Wi-Fi, 
tickets, one-way tickets to Minneapolis from London had reached $10,000. When I looked out and I didn't have, and I didn't get dinged for 10K, I found some other tickets, but it was a rush as everyone, I think, who was working outside the country, right? Realized just how very serious this was really going to be. So then you made it back to Minneapolis. What did social isolation and COVID awareness and, and sort of safety look like for you? How did you react and how seriously did you take it right away? Mm. It's interesting. I think so much of the past year, it's easy to kind of, um, it's easy to smash so many distinct moments of like fear at a supermarket or uncertainty while walking around the lake together, right? Into sort of one anxious snowball that I think sometimes it's hard for me to remember the exact sequence of events. But in the very beginning, you know, I, l- I live alone. And so being in my apartment, I remember reading a lot, feeling like it was um, the most kind of voracious news consumption that, that I had ever exhibited. I remember being physically anxious a lot of the time being, you know, it was like, do we bake our mail? Like, what is the move? I you know, really, really worried about fomites essentially, although I don't think I knew that word then. Worried about my parents. You know, the footage on TV that was really different in the US than the footage had been in the UK. And so I was a little bit worried that the US was being really cavalier about it because in the UK on TV, right? there were pictures of families in Italy who were mourning and you knew what a widow, what she looked like the moment that she lost her man and her kid. And we weren't seeing those, that same kind of emotional coverage here. So I guess I sort of was also panicking that there was this really well heralded crisis coming that no one was heeding. You know what I mean? It felt, no, no, sci-fi and sad and spooky. But yeah, I was, um, I, I meant masking. It meant, uh, I remember wearing plastic gloves for a while at um, at the grocery store. I remember trying to calculate what times of day people would be less likely to be in public places because I, I had the, the flexibility of schedule to try to do things in off hours. And I also remember getting really mad and sad in a way that seems stupid now, but like the people who would walk around the lake shoulder to shoulder, I remember... Um, like getting my shoes really muddy because I was making these big arcs to make sure I wasn't within like 10 feet of anybody even outside, you know? So yeah, I would say, I would say pretty cautious. Did you allow yourself, and maybe this came later, was there ever a a period of mourning about what 2020 was going to be and what you now didn't know uh, 2020 was going to shape up like? Mm, I would say yes, but it was probably... That feeling of mourning was mashed into a lot of other feelings. At first, there was like a sort of a surprising frenzy of activity just to stop things from happening. So like, okay, three months of shows have been canceled. Now six months, right? Now nine months. Just to see like, is there anything salvageable? Like, can we get refunded on hotels and flights and stuff? You know, are we really totally underwater here in a financial sense. I started like a little show from my apartment, just like an Instagram live stream called Show of Force Majeure, because, you know, all of the artists that I knew were scrambling to figure out like, what is a force majeure? This is it, right? Like, this means that we don't get any, (laughs) you know, any compensation for confirmed gigs and stuff. But also, I think there was, um, there was a recognition that, like, of the artists that I know, I was in such a lucky position, man. Like I'm already mid career 
And I'd had a book deal a few years before that, that gave me some financial cushions. So like that just panic of like, what are, what are session player bassists supposed to do, dude? Like, yeah. And you know, the, the time honored safety net is the service industry, which was also closed. So I think there was a lot of messages firing back and forth between artists, like who is okay and who is really struggling and who's not going to make rent. Yeah. How are you with, with isolation? Is that okay for you? Man. Um, I mean, no, I guess. I think I think 2020 was so hard, but it's hard to isolate any one variable. You know what I mean? Like what made it so hard? It was definitely probably one of the worst years of my life. I think that I drank too much for parts of that year. I think that I, it was, it was it's, like, it's almost like I was free to indulge whatever my neuroses were because no one was around or checking me. <laughs> um, and, and you don't have to present, right? Like you don't have to be your social self. <laughs> but and on the, on the other hand, I think I, I was just also like, it felt like, um, I don't know, like just a really, really, really abrupt stop because in a way that f- feels lucky maybe in some capacity, but like I hadn't spent so many nights in the same bed in a really long time. And I have shared notes with other musicians that I think a lot of us were forced to, were asked to confront some stuff that maybe we'd been running from on the road. You know, just like you're your own company. So you really have an opportunity to introspect in a way that the constant rush of tour and the lights and the noise and the drinks and the applause. Do you know what I mean? Like they can tamp down that. And so I think a lot of us were like, gosh, there's a lot about myself that I don't really like. And then also living in Minneapolis, we, of course, and I guess, you know, across the country, but particularly epicenter here in Minneapolis, social unrest, murder of George Floyd. I mean, we had a whole nother layer of anxiety and grief to deal with. How did that work its way into your system, you know, in isolation during a pandemic? Enormously. I suspect that the um, that the murder of George Floyd resonated, you know, particularly in arts communities, which so often are are founded and featured and showcased by people of color. And uh, to have that sort of like compounding variable of fear and hurt, and then after the unrest and the you know destruction essentially of like some of the pharmacies and grocery stores that people in neighborhoods that were already hard hit suffered through. Yeah. I just, I, I have never, I, I've never experienced anything like that. And it felt like my Venmo account or whatever was telling like a short story of the community, you know, as you saw funds whipping back and forth between people for diapers and, um, and food relief. And after after the murder of George Floyd, for me, was also probably a tipping point in COVID safety in that after feeling torn about it for a while, I decided that, you know, that I, that I was going to be part of the, the protests. But at that time, that was really scary, you know, even just from a public health perspective. I didn't know what that meant. I don't think any of us did. You know, there's smoke blowing. Um, you can see the particulate in the air from the fires. So you're very aware of how human exhalations are also probably traveling similarly. Um, but I was, I was deeply moved and impressed, to be honest, about like how the arts community could organize so quickly. It's like Google documents flying back and forth in the mornings about 
what centers need what, you know? And to, to this day, like whenever I go to CVS, there's always, you know how the CVS, they have like really long coupons. They're like, we've got a special on diapers. <laughs> like I, they, I'm sure that, you know, it looks like I have a young kid now for the rest of my life because <laughs> everyone has got to run around grabbing whatever. You've been very productive over the last year as well. I mean, you did launch your podcast. You have also been releasing a, a song a month in your on your IDES project. How did you turn your brain back to, okay, it's go time for some of these things that had been in the works or maybe you decided should be in the works and, and what was that like to get back to a productive artist? Mm, let's see. Okay, so it was probably in the autumn of 2020 when it first felt like, you know what? I think I could write a song. And and also I think like the public health scenario was looking you know, a little bit brighter, like our forecast collectively. It's like, okay, you know, we've got vaccines. And this election went the way that a lot of us hoped it would. And yeah, it, it felt like, okay, I could, I could start rhyming things again. And so then I you know, one of the big questions was, well, what does it actually mean to like release music in a world without touring? Because so much of the economy of independent arts really rests on touring. It's like you record a song and you put it out, but because of digital streaming sites, like nobody really, there's just not too many people actually buying music anymore. And so you really rely on um, live shows as your like primary source of income. Well, given that that was off the table, you know, we decided to kind of change the way that we were releasing stuff. So instead of doing this one big record um, and then touring behind it, yeah, we decided to do a monthly release. So it felt like there was a bit of music to look forward to on this regular interval. Speaking as a as a music consumer, I mean, it was like a, a gift that you had something to look forward to. You had, you know, we needed oh. something that helped us track the time and to you know, look forward to. And so getting these songs and also the diversity of the releases that you had, I mean, some were pretty hard hitting, some were more kind of uh, humorous. Was there a, a guiding force or was it just, you know, I just want to do whatever creatively comes into my mind and just it, I'm a little bit freed because it's all under the guise of Ides. I felt the latter. Yeah, I felt sort of freed. I mean, I've got a lot of musical interests and I like you know, I like some really varied stuff. And so to be honest, I've often sort of struggled at the part of the process where you're supposed to put the album together because I've always got a lot of really different songs on deck. And so, you know, with my with my colleagues, I'm always like trying to find the magical sequence that will make this 12 songs make sense together or whatever. So yeah, this felt liberating. It was like, if I want to do a doofy song one month and do a really serious song, what's to object about that? And and I really liked that part of it. You got a shout out from the Secretary of the Treasury on one. What was it like getting a, a, a tweet from Janet Yellen? <laughs> it blew my mind. Also, I was just like, I, I admit to like indulging in the not very elegant impulse of just like, I was like a, a lab rat with a lover. Like I have not spent so much time looking at Twitter because it was just freaking surreal and like so so maybe just for context the song that i had released was called who's yelling now and it was like a minute and a half send up of the then new treasury secretary janet yellen and it was commissioned by um public radio show marketplace money who's yelling who's yelling now Doves on the left, hawks on the right, cross talk in the flock, trying to fight mid flight. But here comes yelling with that inside voice. Never mind the mild manner, policies make noise. She's five foot nothing, but hands to God. She could pop a collar, she could rock a power bob. Bay Ridge represent, Brooklyn's in the cabinet. Damn, Janet, go and get it. Fifth and life for president. She knows the kind of stimulus it takes to pass. 
classy block. I heard block. she called the house in Christ. She's qualified. It only took a couple centuries. The first female secretary of the treasury. She heard it. I got a note from the treasury department, which in any other circumstance would be terrifying to see that in your inbox. And when she tweeted about it, it blew my mind. And then the thing that like fully exploded my skull was um, was when the... <laughs> The Treasury Department itself tweeted, we'll bring the mint <laughs> in reference to a pun in the song about um, making mojitos for Jenna Yellen because she runs the she runs the mint. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Deeply Human and the release of that, which when that was in the works, I bet you had no idea how important it would be when it came out in terms of delving into the human experience and common human experience and some topics that are very much appropriate for what we were going through as they were coming out. How have you felt that landed and what's it been like to see that play out during this you know, really important time? Mm. Well, I mean, maybe to call back to your comment about looking forward to the release of new content. I mean, I, I haven't had a relationship like I do now with Netflix ever in my life. I was just, I was really surprised over this past year, like how important like serial programs became to me. You know, it was like a really, really, really big part of my day to watch the latest episode of XYZ, you know? like Yeah, I mean, I looked it up online. It was like parasocial relationships or those feelings that you have for fictitious characters. Like it was just a really big part of my headspace um, in these, in these long months of social isolation, you know? So to have something that, to have a couple of serial projects running myself, it did, it did feel really good. You know, it felt like, I don't know, knowing that there was something familiar, like on a weekly basis that, that people who dug it could look forward to with the release of those deeply humans episodes were awesome. I mean, I, we did have some, some conversations like internally on the production team, re-listening to episodes that had been made a year or a year and a half ago for like, do we have to revisit or change the script in some of these? Like the death episode, you know, in, in particular. But I think a lot of them are written with such a generalist perspective. You know what I mean? That it's kind of a, when possible, like a word like timeless is always sort of more attractive to me than a word like timely, you know? And yeah, so I think they were kind of philosophical in investigations most of them that that held up pretty well yeah when you click through the different topics you know as i was listening to them i'm like well this is appropriate now oh this one's you know death the teenage brain you know i have two daughters who are kind of going through covid at, at that time and and trying to understand that sad music you know um i think a lot of us kind of indulged in some sad music and then the one that really struck me was the standing in line and your your comment about we like a progress bar more than a spinning wheel. And COVID felt like a spinning wheel at that time. Totally. Right. And then, totally. and then the vaccines yes. hit and I'm like, finally, I have a progress bar, <laughs> you know? Right. You're totally right. Yeah. It's just that it's the interminable. It's not knowing when the wait is over makes it even harder than a long wait. So I was just curious, like you, there must've been things that you've learned in, in recording these episodes that probably were, you were like, oh, this is what I was talking. This is what they were talking about. <laughs> were there lessons that kind of helped you deal? Oh, interesting. It's like, first of all, I want to be careful because I was not like a model of like, wow, that woman is dealing so well. <laughs> like I was sort of a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that, you know, even before the pandemic, there were definitely lessons that I learned in Deeply Human 
that have in little ways or not so little ways, like changed the way that I do my daily living. Like even that episode that you mentioned, like standing in line, talking to essentially the the major like math theorists who really understand how line waiting works. It hadn't even occurred to me that there were such people, but after having visited with them at MIT, yeah, like I think about the grocery store that I go to really differently. I think about, um, I think about the way that waiting is distributed unevenly across class, you know, and, and, and race and, and how it's so often like, evident of um of the power structure in which that line is situated yeah it does it has it has sort of added some lenses to my worldview for sure give me the sense for where you are now i mean i think that one of the things that that struck me is that momentum is really an important thing for an artist in terms of creativity but also connections with fans and it seemed like you were able to kind of keep some momentum going. How are you feeling about the way that you're emerging from the pandemic? And what are you looking forward to? You've got some live shows coming up, things like that. What's that going to be like to kind of step out again? Uh, okay, so the professional answer and then the human answer. Pro- <laughs> professionally, you are dead on momentum, which can be sort of like hard to qualify or measure. Nonetheless, is such a huge part of an arts career. You know, it's always kind of like that. Are you on the upswing? What you got coming out? And um, yeah, it's just sort of that magic dust that falls on every conversation that you're trying to have when you're trying to get work, you know? So from the professional perspective, I do feel like I'm I'm feeling pretty good. Also, I'm, you know, I, I work with a great team of friends, um, Becky, shout out Becky Hoffman, my manager, but she, she and I have worked really hard during the pandemic to try to keep stuff popping, you know? And I think we've got some, some good, like, holds and the music is being well received and i'm proud of it that feels great tours are in the works like we are back on like we've got maps on the wall i'm refreshing my memory like how far is the drive from nebraska to omaha you know or whatever to, to denver and um that feels good too as a human i admit like oh god i'm anxious man i just that that's um Taking stage and standing in bright lights is such an act of <laughs> controlled grandiosity. <laughs> and this has been such a demoralizing year that, you know, I was talking to another uh, performer, like another front woman for a band a few months ago. And it's like looking at old performance footage. <laughs> we were both like, of ourselves, you know, we were both like, where did she get off? Like, she looks great. Like, what, how, did, how did she find the nerve? <laughs> and, uh, and I'm having a little bit of that, but I think my hope is that when I'm there behind the microphone, hey, we're all going to be having so many of the same feelings, you know, together, like feeling amazed and, and relieved and excited to be in the same room together, that I'm sort of just trusting some of that old mu- muscle memory to take over. My final question is, do you want to just leave this past year behind or are there parts of it that you want to carry forward in some way uh, that you think will actually be beneficial um, down the road? The latter. Um, I don't know exactly what pieces of this past year I'd like to, you know, add to the to my kind of worldview moving forward. But I would say that I think for a lot of us, not all, but a lot of us, there has been a, a tempering. And I mean that probably in at least two senses of the word. Tempering as though, you know, fortified by pain and heat. But also a tempering of some of our ideas. I think of what it what it means to be an American, 
I think a lot of us have reconsidered really thinking a lot harder about what racism looks like and what our system, how our system works, you know, taking a more critical view towards that. And so I think, I think some of those lessons are very much long-term, right? Those don't end when the trial of Derek Chauvin or when the pandemic ends. And also just like, I don't know, thinking harder and maybe like changing my relationship with social media, to be honest, um, for all the good it's done. I think it's also become a, the, t- the tenor has become pretty cruel. I think on a lot of those sites or can be candy. Um, and so trying to find like well-considered careful viewpoints, that's become probably a bigger part of my, yeah. Of like my appetite for, for public discourse. It's a waste of it if you don't bring parts of it forward. If you don't learn something from it, the pandemic, it reminded us that we are have a humanity together. It reminded us that one person's actions impact another person's actions and health and ability to just simply survive and stay healthy. Also, we all have to own up to the racism that we saw come to a, a forefront there. So it's a waste if we don't bring those lessons forward in some way. But again, you how much do you want to dwell on some of these things as well? So it's a, it's a difficult question, I think. How do you learn hard lessons, but in a way that hopefully doesn't only live in like a, a punitive environment? Do you know what I mean? It's like, hopefully you'd be able to extract and promote joy for yourself and for others as a product yeah. of learning those difficult lessons. Yeah. And I think at some point we need to remember that we all do need joy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Rest and joy. Yes. And, and like companionship and doofiness and giggles you know what i mean just the yeah the easy good stuff again too Mm -hmm. well i want to thank you for taking the time today but also just thank you for being sort of a lifeline for a lot of us uh during the pandemic when we needed some levity or we needed some art in our lives or we needed to learn something you provided a lot of lifelines for a lot of us so thank you for that as well um and, and thank you for joining me today Thanks for the kind words. Voices of COVID-19 is an attempt to document the thoughts and feelings of people who are perhaps outside the limelight to get personal reflections on how a pandemic impacts all of our lives. Please join us for the next episode when we'll speak with pulmonologist and NBC health policy analyst, Dr. Vin Gupta, as he reflects on what it was like navigating uncharted waters of the pandemic. What felt different was we were doing things that we typically don't do in critical illness, especially if somebody has a really terrible pneumonia. We were putting patients on their back and then on their belly, proning, supinating them while while they're on a ventilator for, for many hours, extending out for many days. And that was just emblematic to me that we were learning as we were going. We were trying to figure different strategies out in real time. There was no standardization of care because we were literally learning from colleagues in Italy who were able to to give us pearls of wisdom. And then we were then passing that on to our colleagues in New York City. So, I mean, what was happening in real time when you look back on it was extraordinary. That's on the next episode of Voices of COVID-19. Until then, thanks for listening. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and be considerate of each other. And we'll get through this together. Thank you.